I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. All we want to do is leave. That was a, that was a sidebar to us trying to leave. But several days, we'd go up to this village and we'd say, what kind of paperwork do we need? So they kept changing the requirements, the Indian government, but they weren't telling the embassies. So the embassies are saying, hey, sorry you missed that flight. We don't have any more but we might schedule one. I'd missed two flights. And I knew at some point there weren't going to be any more. I don't know, we tried to leave three or four different times. And every time they say, no, you need something different. You need something different. I remember telling my embassy contact, I said, you know, at this point, it's feeling deliberate. You don't want us here. And now they won't let us leave. The embassy had to start employing higher levels of our government just for me. Previously in episode one, we introduced you to veteran journalist Anitra Hamper as she made her escape from India after plans to catch a rare catfish known as the Goonch got derailed by the global pandemic that left her and her fishing guide, Ian Henderson of The Greatest Fish, stranded in India. Just to recap briefly, Anitra and Ian set out on a four-week journalism assignment to Nepal in India. Or so they thought. Instead, they had to rely on each other, others around them, and their own instincts in order to get out of India alive, as the COVID-19 pandemic beset the country and paranoia against foreigners ran high. Let's return to Anitra with more of the horrific ordeal that took her from hope to hopelessness and back, and everything in between in Episode 2 of Escape from India. We were only gone five days (laughs) with two nine-hour drives in there. It was fast. We left never intending to come back to the original camp. And that is actually when things just shifted drastically. And so by the time we got back to the camp five days later, the country was, uh, they put it into full lockdown with four hours notice and they were just starting to see cases. And so now this thing that these people have heard about everywhere else in the world, but they're, they're protected from it, they can't get it, is suddenly here. So it's a panic. The ATMs were already out of money before the lockdown even happened. Once the lockdown happened, food was scarce. You could go up to the village. There were like a couple hours a day you could get food. We had gotten chicken on the first the first time we were through the camp. So we had great food and lots of it and resources. And by the time we had gotten back after the lockdown happened, we were suddenly, shoot, there's no more chicken man to get chicken from. We have to kind of use what we have here. Now we were in the camp with, there was a total of 12 of us. It was the owner and he brought his family down from the village. There was a, a Indian angler on holiday. And then there were five, boys, local boys that they couldn't get back to their villages, but they were staff. And so we said, let's just keep paying them. Right. And uh, we have a cook that works out. They can clean stuff and fix things. And so that's what we did. And so we stayed at the camp a total of the second time, about three weeks. And at that time we had almost no communication. So news was tough to get. My plan, because of my original flight was to leave on April 1st, I thought, well, maybe I can still get that. I, I, I remember thinking that. So maybe flights were still going at that point. Because I thought, oh, I'll just stay, I'll hang out here for a few days and then I'm out of here. That was what I thought was going to happen. That was before the lockdown. So the lockdown happened. And then I realized we're stuck here. 
like indefinitely. So I can tell you that the prospect of in, of indefinite more than unsettling, uh, you know, the temperatures were getting up to a hundred degrees during the day. We're in this Valley. We have no meat protein. Ian and I strategized constantly over coffee, over tea. Every morning we'd go fishing. Eventually we had to have a conversation with all of us at camp to say, what do we do about food? I mean, we had, you know, vegetables and lentils and things, all of us are very avid catch and release anglers. It's important to us, especially in this river, because the golden masseur is protected. It was the river was shut down for a year and a half and it just reopened. But certainly any big fish, which I did catch one the first time, you know, we would never ever fish for those um, to eat. But we thought, well, there were some trout in the river as well. So we said, maybe we're going to have to do that because we're going to be here for a long time. And there's 12 of us and we need, we need food. Mm -hmm. um, there was one evening the boys were trying to figure out how to make a cage <laughs> to go catch wild pigs in the forest for food. I mean, that was a rough night. <laughs> this isn't happening. Anitra, you've been at the camp and you and Ian are now discussing after roughly three weeks there. And I know it's rough at that point. When could you begin to realistically put together an evacuation plan? to leave and you're in a very remote part of India, how does that work out? How does that transpire? We'd been there a couple of weeks and we didn't have much communication. I could plunk out a few messages to my mother. If we hiked down to the river, Ian could get a signal barely from his SIM card. I could hotspot off of that, but I couldn't get any kind of internet or email, but I could send some WhatsApp messages like if it you know, eventually would send to my mother, who was basically my, my lifeline. I said, look, once things really started getting scary, I said, I need one person to know what's really going on. I'm afraid of getting hauled away. I'm afraid of getting, I mean, we've already been escorted off and we had heard about a group of French tourists that were taken away somewhere. I mean, where? I don't know. To this day, was it quarantine? Were they arrested? Where? I had been telling her these things. I said, you, someone needs to know. And so when you go out to the river and I could do a few messages, I said, you're the only one I have time to reach out to. I mean, I need you to contact this person. This I need you to try and get the embassy. I can't contact anybody. She did. And she also got in touch with the Society of American Travel Writers and our president, Jane Woldridge, because I do some work for them as well. And I said, I need you to, I need you to contact these people. And all I know is uh, um, a few days later, one time when I was by the river, a WhatsApp group popped up and all it was called was get Anitra out. I don't even know who was on it. When we had to prioritize messages because we, we could only send a couple. It was Jane and it was a guy from the Committee to Protect Journalists, which you may know um, helps journalists in, in dire situations around the world. Mm -hmm. And a couple other people. The long and the short of it, th this little army of my colleagues, not even the embassy yet, at this point, I had no one except my mother. These people started pressing their contacts around the world. They are the ones who got me somebody at the embassy. And so once I finally had an embassy person, they said, you know what, we're planning one flight and hopefully you can get to Delhi by, I think it was April 6th. Here's your paperwork, we'll get you out of here. And I thought, great, this is it, this is good. At the same time, Ian was still trying to get into contact with the UK embassy. 
This is World Footprints, and you're listening to veteran journalist Anitra Hamper as she describes her terrifying experiences while on a reporting fishing trip while in India earlier this year. Here's more from Anitra. The things that complicated us were the fact that we were so remote and that we had our own transportation because most people don't go where we went and most people don't have their own transportation in India. And since Ian does work there all the time, that's why we had access to both of those things. We had release papers now from the embassy. He eventually got some, so we said, great, let's pack the car, let's go. Let's get to Delhi by April 6th, um, which was still a couple days away at this point. So the first time we tried to leave, we got stopped. I mean, less than 15 miles from where we were. We were told by the authorities, you can't go. Wrong paperwork. And I said, no, it's not. It's the right paperwork. No wrong paperwork. Go, we'll arrest you. So they wouldn't let us go. So we had to turn around. And every time we went up to this village, it's a two-hour drive. They turn us around two hours back. I mean, we'd already said our goodbyes. You know, we were excited. We we're going to go home. We're out of here. For like a week, the car was packed. Um, and, and all this time while we're at the camp, keep in mind, every once in a while, you'd hear sirens and authorities coming down. And during the window of time that all my colleagues were reaching out to anybody and my mother and her network of people who I know somebody in India and I'll see if they can help. That whole outreach effort took on a life of its own to the point that one of the authorities had come down one of the days in this window where we're trying to leave to have a meeting with us. And we said, well, I I don't understand. (laughs) What's the meeting for? So we had this sort of awkwardly formal meeting, socially distanced with some chairs apart with this police official. And he said, I'd like to know, are you being held against your will? This man holding you hostage. And I thought, oh my God, he's pointing to the Indian man who's sticking his neck out to protect us. And I said, I don't understand why, why, no, we're not being held hostage. And so all these people reaching out to all their people got back to somebody, I don't know who, somebody sent a letter to this officer and said, an American journalist and her colleague are being held against their will. You need to go check on them. You need to prove that they are okay. So here we are. This man is now in trouble for holding us against our will. I said, no, we're not. We're safe here. We're healthy. So we had to make proof of life videos, both of us, to show the authorities, this man's boss, that indeed we're okay. All we want to do is leave. That was a, that was a sidebar to us trying to leave. But several days, we'd go up to this village. we say, what kind of paperwork do we need? So they kept changing the requirements, the Indian government, but they weren't telling the embassies. So the embassies are saying, hey, sorry, you missed that flight. We don't have any more but we might schedule one. I'd missed two flights. And I knew at some point there weren't going to be any more. I don't know. We tried to leave three or four different times. And every time they say, no, you need something different. You need something different. I remember telling my embassy contact, I said, you know, at this point, it's feeling deliberate. You don't want us here. And now they won't let us leave. The embassy had to start employing higher levels of our government just for me. And we've had thousands of people stuck there. So eventually, the embassy said, look, we've got a flight on April 11th, but you need to be there on the 10th. It's like an overnight flight. We were now on April 8th and nothing was happening. And keep in mind, it's a 14-hour drive. So in our heads, we'd like to budget like maybe two days to get there. So the afternoon of April 9th, keep in mind, I have to be there if I'm going to get this flight 24 hours later. 
the afternoon, it was like four in the afternoon, all of a sudden we get noticed that nine other hoops we had to jump through with paperwork and embassy just got approved. And within 10 minutes, we were, we were gone. And part of this process of approval, we had to submit our route that we would take to Delhi. So they knew exactly where we were going to be. As we were heading up the mountain to this village to go, we find out that part of our route is closed because of landslides, because of rains that had just happened. On a whim, we had to figure out another route. Keep in mind, that means no one knows where we are. We picked another route. We thought maybe we'd sleep overnight if we got a chance. And I'm like, I don't want to sleep on the side of the road. Or maybe we'd just drive through. We didn't know. But what we did know is as we started going through police checkpoints, keep in mind where we were, we would have to pass through several states to get Mm -hmm. to Delhi. And then you've got dozens of little villages. All of them have their own police checkpoints. All of them are making up their own rules, which complicated things. Off we go. Most of the police checkpoints initially were like, oh, they looked at our paper. They read it. They're you know, doing this. They just did that. We said, oh my gosh, this is, this is amazing. This, nothing, nothing this good has happened to us yet. So we thought it was going to be smooth sailing to get to Delhi. And it was, I mean, for hours and hours. We got about, oh, maybe 170 miles outside of Delhi in a town called Haldwani that we were never supposed to go through because we were going a different route. And at this checkpoint, I could tell there was a problem. I hear health check, health check, five minutes. Ian saying, well, we have, to, we have to catch a flight. We have to catch a flight. No, no, you follow. You follow officer. And I'm looking out my window on this side. Cars with locals are going through the checkpoint. They're just pulling us over, which this has been typical. So we, it wasn't a shock, but we just thought, okay, look at our paper and let us go. No. He said, you, you follow. When things really started going haywire, obviously I was already taking notes, but my background as an investigative journalist for 20 years working in television news, I realized I needed to document everything. My notes, I was taking pictures, I was taking video, everything. A lot of it very discreet, of course. This happened to be one of the times I just turned my, my video on and I could hear the conversation. And the last thing I say on the video before it turns off, as we're driving off the main highway following an officer, I said, where are we going? And Ian said, it'll be okay. They take us off. I did not want to leave the main highway. So they take us off to this dark field with nothing. There's nothing in there except way in the distance. I see this sort of fun house like pink tent. It was this oddly pink tent in the middle of a dark field. Cause now it's probably, I don't know, maybe 10 or 11, maybe even midnight. I'm not even sure. They make us get out of the car. They're taking us to this tent. They say, we need a health check. We have a health check. We have papers. They didn't care. You follow, you know, when you've got armed officers telling you you're going, you are going. So we go to this pink tent. They do the same things. They ask us the questions. They take temperatures, the whole bit. I counted 12 of them. So they were either medical medical workers or armed officers that were behind us. There was not a single other non-official there, just myself and Ian. One of the gentlemen tells Ian, he, he said, give him a hand. He stamps his hand. Ian said, what is this? He said, health check to prove we had a health check. Well, I didn't want that. So then he's told me hand. And I said, I don't want that. Can I get a piece of paper? They speak very little English. And, and he said, hand, hand. I said, I don't want that. I want, can I just get a piece of paper that says it? Because we got a piece of paper before. Um, and he started getting agitated. He said, hand. And, and at that moment, he took my hand and he stamped it. But it was like right before that, because I was getting very angry. 
it was like one of those slow motion moments in your world where I realized, okay, I've got armed guys behind me. I don't want to make the situation worse, but I don't want this. I've told him no. And then I remembered no one knows where we are. And I think it was at that point I gave him my hand because I realized, oh my God, even my own embassy, we were never supposed to even go through this village. No one would know where we are. The man stamped my hand twice and it said April 9th, 2020. That's fine. It was very upset. You know, I was very angry, but I thought if I say anything else, it's going to escalate the situation. And we, right now, I just want to catch that plane. So we left. We got to Delhi about four in the morning. Delhi's shut down. Hotels are closed, but the embassy told me of one that would allow foreigners. And so we checked in at like four in the morning. They had one floor for foreigners. We feel like, okay, we've made it. I'm going to be able to get to the airport. I'm going to be able to get this flight. The next day, I, I was washing that stamp off of my hand, and I was like, God, it, it burns a little bit. wouldn't come off. And Ian said, yeah, mine burns a little bit too. It's weird. Oh, my God. So by the next day, um, this thing that they put on our hand had turned into this blistering chemical burn. My skin was open. In fact, I just had my dermatologist look at it on Monday, and she said, yep, pretty much the top layer of your skin burned off. So the night that I, I got my flight, I got to the airport, and it's closed. But the embassy table was there and a line of hundreds of people to catch this EBAC flight. I'm going up in line with my bag to check in. And I look over like this and I see the American flag hanging there. And I just remember thinking, it's over. It's over. They can't get me. They can't, they can't anything. It's over. Just being so blatantly targeted with such horrific actions against us, blatant, for nothing more than we were foreigners. And so, you know, I caught the flight, got home. We were told, you aren't going to know where you're going to land until you board. We landed in San Francisco. And the minute that the flight touched down, you know, people started chanting, USA, USA, USA. And that was another just feeling of... You know, and I haven't even really processed everything. It's like we had to make such fast decisions. We're living very primitively. You know, we're watching cremations at the river over morning coffee. And that was normal. That was normal. Uh, we're talking about catching wild chickens in the, the forest for food. My entertainment was watching the langurs jump through the trees. Or Ian and I would go look for monkey skulls along the river. Anything to keep our mind active. And, you know, I'd build a little gym out of stones and rocks too because i thought we have to stay healthy we cannot get sick we can't even look like we're sick and god forbid we do get the virus they would never treat us they would punish us and stick us out at the curb with the rest of their trash Whew. that really made me nervous dear my heart kept beating you know the first episode i thought anitra and ian were in a, a a scene of the fugitive this time it seemed more like the twilight zone with all the twists and turns it was just very surreal this experience had those twists and turns uh, from hope to hopelessness every time uh and i think it must have been at least two possibly three times when they tried to leave the base camp they had four. A four times four times yeah uh, she had a turn back with Ian because even though they had the papers, they just weren't good enough at that point or something came up with these officers. And I can only imagine how deflating that had to be when you get your hopes up high and then all of a sudden mm -hmm. you've got to go back to 
ground zero, so yeah. to speak. When hope is taken away, and I think what really agitated me, uh, <laughs> me, I wasn't there, but certainly for Anitra and Ian, just the lack of communication between local governments, the embassies, you know, it's like the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing, or, you know, or maybe the right hand slapped the left hand. I don't know, but this experience was not easy at all for them and they were just trying to leave as she said and get home and when they were trying to get to delhi at that last encounter where sadly uh they got their hands stamped and it turned out the next day they were actually burned by the stamp that was placed on them that had to be very painful as she described and also humiliating too well i mean it was also a violation you know anitra said no and her no was not honored and you know just having your body branded like that and that's essentially what happened to them um, for no other reason than to say they had a health check and you know, why couldn't they just have a piece of paper as um, they had hoped? But, it, you know, it's just really disappointing. I mean, having been to India myself and having really developed a love for that country, um, it, it's really disappointing to see how they were treated. And this virus has scared people to a point where, you know, they don't even recognize who they are. And, I've just, I've never seen anything like this in my life. None of us have. Indeed. Next time in the final episode of Escape from India, Anitra shares what life has been like after this harrowing experience. I'm still trying to desperately find a place for all of this. I've been able to, in, in the last number of weeks, to think about the different things that have happened because we just didn't have time. Two, we had to just keep making decisions. No time to be upset about that. Just got to do it. It's almost surreal, and I don't really have a home for those things yet. There's times that I've just cried, times that um, I still feel very, maybe anxious is the word, just kind of revved up. I noticed that that's odd because there's no reason to be revved up. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out how to manage all of that you know, certainly people have been through way worse, but I think it was just the blatant targeting. It was the fear of getting sick. Mm-hmm. It was the fear of these people are actually trying to hurt me. Um, so it was, it's a, it's a very complex matrix of emotions, really, of where do I let this live in my brain so that I can get past it? We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we are so honored that you chose to take this adventure with us. Thank you for spending this time and allowing us to connect you to the world through the stories we share on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints, LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes, and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.